For November 28th, 2016, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 439, Arrival, both goes big and goes home. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, and we're never happier than when we were talking about the movies, TV shows, music, and so on that we love. This week, Arrival, starring Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. Uh, there will be spoilers once we get into the Arrival uh, into the Arrival part, so if you haven't seen it, I, I'd actually advise waiting. This is a movie that can be spoiled, um, because there's a, there are things that are revealed. The plot is important, unlike some of the other movies that we talk about, like Fantastic beasts and where to find them where there are no spoilers possible really because the movie contains fantastic beasts and the only surprise is where you find them and that is in an unexpected place so uh, arrival it came out a couple weeks ago but we finally got around to seeing it this week and we want to talk about it who are we you ask here is your panel this week pete fenzel hey pete hey mass how are you doing Non-linear, Matt. How are you? <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> uh, we are blessed and and thankful, so thankful this Thanksgiving week to be joined by uh, overthinker Amanda Jorda Avisati. Amanda, welcome back to the Overthinking Podcast. Hi, thank you. Glad mm. to be back. It's very nice to have you. And Mark Lee is with us. I am 56% macaroni and cheese at this point, and that number is only slowly declining after Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, really? It's, it's not going up based on the leftovers that you have squirreled away in your fridge? I mean, like I started out at a certain point and, you know, the level decreases, then it ticks back up a little bit, but it's a net decrease since Thanksgiving Day. I mean, I, I feel like I'm mostly sweet potato at this stage. Uh, there, there's, uh, you know, and I had like a small vat uh, left in left in the fridge, but the only way to eat a vat of sweet potatoes is three or four pounds at a time. I'm Matt Rather, your host. <laughs> uh, before we get to Arrival, let's talk about another cinematic masterpiece that is on the, uh, that is uh, on the boards. It's not really on the boards. That's more of a theater thing. That is in the theaters this week. That's right. Bad Santa 2 opened. And I know nothing about it other than it's called Bad Santa 2. And I said to Pete, uh, I said, wait, isn't that the one with the jackass guys? And Pete replied... No, it's bad grandpa. And it made us realize that there are so many movies uh, about uh, incompetent people. You think movies are about <laughs> heroes. You think movies are about, like many years ago, a prophecy was foretold that a hero would rise from among the people. And, and the, the Joseph Campbell monomyth and the kind of the Star Wars story or uh, uh, the action movie kind of thing, people rising to the occasion. No, what people really want to see is incompetence and failure, which now... which which really puts the election in perspective. So in honor of the the uh, the advent, if you will, of Bad Santa 2, in honor of the bad advent of Bad Santa panel, your bad question of this week is, uh, we'd like to propose an- uh, another... Um, another bad franchise. Now, we already have Bad Santa, Bad Grandpa, Bad Ass, Bad Boys, Bad Dads coming out, uh, Bad Moms already been out, Bad Teacher. Uh, 
Bad Lieutenant, Bad Lieutenant 2, Port of Call, New Orleans. Uh, so, so those are off the table. <laughs> but, uh, but any other bad franchise uh, that you want to propose, tell us what it's called and tell us what, uh, what, by and large, it concerns. First in the alphabet, drink, if you are playing the drinking game, because it's our friend, Pete Fenzel. Matt, whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, yeah. I think about the food court at the Garden State Plaza in huh. New Jersey. Oh, yeah. And the, and the general opinion started to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed, but I don't see that. It seems to me that bad is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends or friends, all deliberately living for no other purpose than to be bad at the thing that they are being called to do at any given moment. If you look for it, I've got a sneaking feeling that you'll find that bad actually is all around. Uh, that's right. I would love to see the bad come together in a holiday tour de force bad actually where there's a crisis <laughs> a, a, a mall crisis of uh, the, the bad moms the bad grandpa the bad lieutenants the bad boys who actually have to fall under the jurisdiction of the bad lieutenant during due to some complex bad uh, legwork and bad logistical management uh, i just to see who oh, do they know each other do they do they have obligations to each other that they flout for no other reason other than like a sort of vague frustration that they ought to be doing something different than what they are? Right. I mean, Cameron Diaz is the bad teacher. Does she have anything to teach or does she teach by not teaching? Huh? I don't know because I haven't watched Bad Teacher, but it's in that universe. <laughs> and I feel like I don't know where Colin Firth fits in. I think you can get uh, Rick Grimes from The Walking Dead to come back to the franchise, although this time as Rick Grimes from The Walking Dead, because uh, he's kind of a bad leader in his own manner, in his own way. Uh, yeah, no, I'm excited. I, I think I think really with all the what is the what, what happening now? Office Christmas party. Yes. Right. Is, is the big because we are in the sort of uh, it, it, there's. In, in, the, in the sort of mythos of the devil, there's this idea that, that due to the devil's anger and, and sadness and, and vengefulness against humanity, the devil becomes like gradually a lesser and lesser creature, right? Starts out as an angel, becomes sort of a demon, right? And then sort of descends into a snake. And then it sort of like becomes – and the snake gets sort of stamped down with the heel of, of kind of divine retribution. And that's sort of the tragic arc of the devil in Western civilization. And I feel like the Love Actually movies, like the sort of the, the scion of this sort of super cut holiday fiesta, right? Of like, oh, everybody was available for a day and a half and we made a movie that takes place on a calendar day. That's been on a long slide and we want to see just how far it can go. Offers Christmas Party seems like it might be the bottom, but I feel like we really need to acknowledge it and just dwell there with bad actually. Uh, and, and maybe it takes place on December 26th when everybody's trying to get really good deals on holiday decorations for next year uh, or trying to return uh, Xboxes that they played already or dresses that they already got bodily fluids all over because that's the kind of plot line that happens in those kinds of I mean, yeah, exactly. If it, takes pl- if it takes place at a mall or it doesn't take place at a mall, it takes place at a rest stop, right? 
Oh, it could take place at a truck rest stop, and there's like a, a sunglasses shop. Totally. Oh, oh sorry, I, I I didn't know that you said the name of something in Jersey, and I didn't know if oh. it was a I didn't know if it was a mall or a rest stop. I mean, I really can't tell the difference. If it was between... a rest stop, Matt, it would be named after somebody famous who was born in or otherwise associated with New Jersey, such as Vince Lombardi, Grover Cleveland, or uh, or Florence Nightingale. I believe is it Florence Nightingale, Molly Pitcher. I don't even know. Uh, but there's a bunch of them. They're, they're, they're great. Uh, they're great, great rest stops. I, I, I always mention the Garden State Plaza, which is close to near where I grew up. Not a bad mall, a good mall, but a meeting place, right? Where conceivably people with various sorts of ironically incompetent intentions, people who could do better but choose not to, and we root for them for it, you know, uh, might all convene uh, for the occasion. Bad rest stop would not be a would not be a terrible <laughs> entry. In well, the thing. is bad trucker exists because that's something that should exist. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's fa- that's fantastic. I would say that that would be like a Roger Corman movie or a trauma movie or something <laughs> like that. Uh, exactly. All right, let's uh, let's push on. Amanda Jorda Avisati, uh, our guest here tonight on the Overthinking It podcast. What is your entry to the Batty Verse? I'm going to be quick to make up for Pete's very, 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 very great idea. But mine is from the brilliant minds behind the Skiotrayek comes bad collage. It's like voodoo, but with paper and scissors. You're going little to... kids are little You're... kids are making collages. At uh-huh. home, they you know they're home from school. They don't want to do homework because who wants to do homework? So they're cutting up you know magazines and they cut up a model's head because you know little kids don't have like motor coordination skills. So they cut the model's head off and the model wherever she is on vacation in Fiji or whatever, her head just falls off. Oh wow! This okay, got it. So they so they become like <laughs> vo- they wow. become voodoo doll. They become voodoo collages. Yeah, yeah. Like every magazine now is a voodoo doll. Oh yeah, so I, like, wait, I mean, I thought. Here? Sorry. Yeah, that, that's what that's exactly what I was going to ask. You're gonna have to to unpack the. Uh, you're gonna have to unpack the the uh, reference for us as clueless uh, uh, non non American cinema files. Oh, which reference? The Das Geotrayek at the beginning? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's a terrible that sounds like movie. A, that sounds like a word you just made up. No, that, that's a real word, but that's a terrible movie idea I made up with friends like 10 years ago. It's, <laughs> so it's, you just mentioned a movie that doesn't exist. That well, we just I made it up. Like prominent <laughs> film in Brazilian cinema. I made it up and, you know, Bad Collage came from my mind. So technically, the brilliant minds behind Bad Collage are the same as the brilliant minds behind, you know, Das Geodreieck. So I... I um... I smell franchise potential here because yes, kids, kids exactly. don't just do collages. They do all kinds of art projects badly. So I feel like bad collage could have a sequel in like bad watercolor, bad sculpture, you know, bad uh, decoupage, bad, you know, and on and on, and on through every, uh, you know, uh, bad clay ashtray. Right. And on and on through every kind of uh, uh, bad art project that that a child brings home uh, to his or her parents and, you know, has to be like pinned up on the on the refrigerator or uh, or uh, put in a position of honor on the coffee table or something like that. You yeah. Know? Um, it, it would be very good. I thought that the horror angle was going to be you were going to give the children exacto knives to do the collage with instead of safety scissors because that's like I, I, I recall in in a graphic design class in college I sliced myself pretty badly with an exacto knife. But uh, you know, so so I, I suppose well, even they're murdering people anyway. It's already you know you don't have to keep pushing. It's true. Do they know they're murdering people though? Well, I think they find out eventually. Uh-huh. Like maybe they, you know, they move from magazines to pictures of their families, and right. they go and cut dad's forehead, and dad's forehead suddenly disappears. Disappear? Yeah, that's or I, you know falls off with 
lots of blood gushing. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm loving, I'm loving this. And the the child is at one end of the hall holding a uh, <laughs> holding a picture of mom, and mom's at the other end of the hall trying to <laughs> cajole or beg or plead. This is really good. This is a this is a good horror movie. I I almost feel like this is too good. Uh, this is too good to be bad. It's a bad. It's a bad collage in that it's a collage that does evil, uh, and not that not that they're they're. Uh, oh yes, my collages are very competent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Lee, next in the alphabet, what is your uh, what is your entry in the Bataverse? Okay, I thought you were going to steal my thunder by mentioning uh, Bad Trucker earlier, but because uh, it's very similar to my concept, which is Bad Drivers. I think Bad Trucker is like uh, sort of a horror movie kind of thing. The trucker does evil, but Bad Drivers is about people who are bad at driving, right? Uh, the movie starts out with everybody in defensive driving class um, or like, you know, sort of like a remedial driving class, and they're guilty of all the driving sins, driving too fast, driving too slow, distracted driving, drunk driving, um, anything else you can, you can, you can imagine. Uh, that qualifies a bad driver. Um, but they all come together and learn the value of public transportation. That's right. My movie <laughs> is really going to be uh, political propaganda about government funding for public transportation so that these bad drivers don't have to be on the road to endanger themselves and others and they can get where they need to go in a safe and environmentally conscious manner. I think that's the plot of Soul Plane, if I'm not <laughs> <laughs> I'm not positive though. It's been a couple of years. I've had it with this mother effing soul on this mother effing plane. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I okay. So I was thinking that it was going to be a scared straight red asphalt style uh, driving school movie, but but not so. Uh, not so. You say it's actually sort of agitprop to to uh, promote the idea of public transportation in municipalities like Los Angeles. That, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I am a firm believer that some bad drivers cannot be rehabilitated. Let's be honest. Some people, not the less people on the road, and by people I mean people in general. The less people on the road, the better off we all will be. This this summer, some bad drivers will never learn. No, I don't know. We'll have to workshop that. Um, mine, I want, I want to do a, uh, a, a sort of like Pete's, but I, I want to do. You know how the 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 Wayans brothers, the the Wayans establishment, um, did a series of parody films, uh, right? Scary movie and and so on. Um, yeah, a haunted house. I've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah, their it's, paranormal activity parody. Yep. Right, and there there were. I mean, there were several of these. I can't call them. I can't call them all to mind. But Pete I the Spartans. I don't know if that was them, but yeah. Well, right. That, that, uh, uh, all of those, uh, it's sort of inheriting the mantle of the Zucker brothers a little bit, right? Like, uh, with airplane, you know, being a parody of disaster movies and, um, and things like this. I want to do, uh, like, I want to do bad parodies of, uh, like classic, uh, classic films that are about competence or extraordinary bravery or extraordinary accomplishment. Um, Bad Sully is one. Uh, where <laughs> <laughs> he just crashes the plane at us. And- <laughs> it's a very short film. It's very bad. Uh, Bad Schindler's List is another one that oh. I think. <laughs> Oh, that I think, you know, any sort of moment of moral heroism or of kind of rising to the occasion and like it, that it, bad fly away home. Right. Where it's, geese are everywhere. What? <laughs> <laughs> Those geese don't follow the rules. No, just just bad fly away home is you just shoot all the geese and you have like <laughs> uh, you have game birds for dinner. You have game birds for days. Um 
you know, and, uh, and, and, and things like this. And, and they'd be like, uh, they'd be parodic in the, in that kind of, uh, Wayans or Zucker, uh, you know, thing. And so, so Bad Sully is just my first, is my first, um, you know, is my first opening, opening what salvo. What does he do? What does, what does Sully do that's so bad? <laughs> oh, I hate how society makes me want to land this plane. Like, <laughs> right. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? I'm preemptively resentful of the bureaucratic circus that is go- that that would ensue if I were to successfully land this plane and save uh, all of these save all of these lives. And so in order to save myself uh, a couple of tense meetings, we're all going down together, baby. Or alternatively, it's the same plot where Sully lands the plane on the river, but like he's smoking a cigar, he's drinking Jack Daniels, and the people are like Sully, you can't do that, and he's like, oh, bad Sully, they, I, but they whatever they, I want. They actually they actually made that movie. It's called Flight, oh. and it stars Denzel Washington. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> and he is a yeah, he is like a pill popping, coke snorting, hard drinking. Oh, oh. Nominated for best actor for that, right? It, it no, it was a good it was. Is a good serious movie, and that's yeah. uh, that's exactly bad yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to avoid. Though I feel like oh, the yeah. I feel like like good cinema uh, about bad Santas really dishonors both cinema and Santa, and that uh, <laughs> that you need to have a bad movie uh, if it's going to be bad Santa. I don't know if it is or not. It it uh, apparently made some money. It was the number eight movie in America this uh, number eight movie in America this week, and it's in its debut so santa's doing something right all right uh let's pop over to arrival but first uh let's talk a little bit about the overthinking it uh gift guide that's right it is time for our annual uh tradition we've done it every year since we started uh since we started overthinking it uh, where we the overthinkers write um some recommendations of some things that we have used during the year that we like that might make good gifts. Uh, this year, actually, there is a there is an odd sincerity uh, to the gift guide in that everything on the gift guide, I think that uh, the the person recommending it actually legitimately believes would be a good gift recommendation for the smart, funny overthinker in your life or for yourself. Get yourself treat yourself nice, you know. Do a little self-care with the overthinking it gift guide you know how these things work right because we were doing it before it was cool but now everyone is doing it uh a lot of the links in our gift guide are uh, affiliate links and if you go click to them and buy something we get a small kickback from the things that you have uh we get a small kickback from the things that you have uh purchased there actually anything whether or not if you if you initiate the the session if you go to amazon from one of our links whatever you get uh will get credit for even if it's not the thing um that we recommend though you should definitely get the things that we recommend uh the they they as i say we're not trolling anybody this year there's no uh yeti cooler which pete i don't think you actually meant for anybody to buy a yeti cooler did you i mean if you have a boat if you have a boat and you want a really expensive beverage cooling thing i mean I wouldn't have I wouldn't have said no. I actually got myself a Yeti thermos 
uh, in the intervening times. So I wouldn't say it was entirely ironic. But the picture of a bear that I put trying to get into the Eddie cooler was entirely <laughs> ironic. And it was not attempted uh, as, as, oh, if you have a bear problem, then you should get this Yeti cooler. Right. Um, yeah, we yeah. don't know. Uh, we, we really don't advise on large animal, uh, on whatever large animal issues that you have. No, uh, whether it's uh, gaming and electronics, whether it's books, whether it's vinyl records, which is a thing that we buy a fair number of these days. Uh, the traditional um, artisanal coffee section, uh, uh, gifts for fitness, uh, the Hamilton gift guide by our very own Mark Lee, and uh, Amanda's drawing and writing gift pack, including some fantastic, uh, some fantastic fountain pens, um, for, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, for soothing, comforting and, and delighting yourself. And we'll go into them a little more in, in coming weeks, but just, just, uh, this to start by saying, get yourself over to overthinkingit.com. Check out the 2016 holiday gift guide. When you buy anything, you'll be supporting us, and we thank you very much for that. All right, arrival. Uh, you know, let's. There, there are a number of ways that we can dive into the movie. So, I honestly, let's just we we rolled dice before we rolled uh, a die, a single die before, uh, and I knew the outcome already was going to be that Pete was uh, Pete was going to start us off. This we start uh, we start arrival spoilers now. So, Pete, um, what what are your what were your kind of main impressions walking away from this film? Like, what are the maybe top two or three things on your mind having seen Arrival with? Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. Well, I'll start with a main kind of statement of evaluative purpose, which I want to pose to all of you guys also and kind of raise as the as the first initial topic of conversation. Nothing in the arrival is scary or tense or bad if you know what is going to happen later in the story. And I would say that this is both a bug and a feature, right? It is a problem with the movie as a series of events and as a series of of things that characters are invested in. Uh, But the movie is also rejects causality by association. Maybe not as its core message, but it, it must to a degree reject conventional notions of causality in order to follow through on some of the details of its premise. And so I would say that there are a lot of scenes in the arrival that are tense and are intense and sort of lead you in and have kind of a sequential escalation to them, which if you were to look at them, uh, you know, through the mind of a heptapod, right, with with the mind of a heptapod or the mind of a heptapod fluid human who's learned to dream in heptapod, uh, they would not be scary. And and that that arrival is saying something about our lives and the human condition by putting that out there, but is also posing itself a problem in its storytelling. Um, I mean, I don't know. So because I feel like with the arrival, you have the issue of it's a movie where there are protagonists and they have problems and they have relationships and they get through the problems and they deal with the relationships and, and there's kind of payoff and, and it functions like a movie. But at that, it, it has huge, huge problems that it has to get get through as it goes. And there's also a piece of speculative science fiction based on some theory of mind and language, which we'll get into later. Um, but I wanted to touch on that first part arrival as a sequence of events that rejects sequentialistic thinking in general. 
right? What did you guys think about that? I mean, I know, I, I mean, I'll kick it to Mark first, I know, because I know he had kind of a sour taste in his mouth from Arrival, and maybe it intersects kind of with this sort of notion of, of like, well, does it all matter? Does any of it matter uh, with all of the paradoxes and all the other kinds of stuff? All right, okay. I, I, I don't know if I would say I had a sour taste in my mouth, but I think it was just, it's, it's not so much a sour taste in my mouth, it's more sort of an ambivalent, confused, slightly confused feeling in my soul. How about that? Different, oh, in your soul. Different, different organ, yeah. Um, okay, so just first to address uh, your your main observation about how the, the movie challenges conventional notions of sequentiality and uh, uh, causality of events, right? Uh, just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, you're basically saying, like, you know, all the tense moments about, like, what's going to happen, are these characters going to survive, it all kind of breaks down, it doesn't matter, because you know, especially later on in the movie, when you realize that everything is going to be okay, because Amy Adams, I guess, can see into the future. It's just a question of why. And, like, maybe, uh, Pete, is it, am I correct in saying that, like, once you figure that out, it kind of sucks out some of the drama um, and some of the tension out of the movie? Is that kind of what you're getting at? I mean, yeah, I would even say it works. I think it works on a lot of levels. I think even – so th- imagine, you know, they're walking into the hole, right? They go into the spaceship aperture. They go into Docking Bay 94 or whatever, right? And they do the whole dancing on the ceiling, metal storm, gravity shift thing. And they t- they walk on the side of the wall and they go up to the big screen and they talk to the heptapod. Mm-hmm. Once you know – what the heptapods are like you'll find this out later in the movie it doesn't you don't even have to get into the future telling stuff once you find out what the heptapods are what their agenda is what's going on there's no there was never any risk of them going into the spaceship it was never dangerous it only appeared dangerous because it was unknown right I, I, I somewhat agree with you in that, but the danger then is sort of in the broader situation, the geopolitics around how the Chinese are just going to attack them. Well, right, uh, right, yeah, the yeah, real, the real antagonist, kind of forced, the real yeah. antagonist is the is communism, right? Like <laughs> the real antagonist. I don't is, think so. Is the is military is is, I, I, is is like human nature and and militarism. I mean, I feel like I I know what you're saying, Pete, and I feel like this is a it is like a genre of time ta- travel science fiction movie where the like time is not linear kind of thing happens like this is like um oh there there are i mean watchman deals with it maybe in a slightly more sophisticated way and teases out some of the the uh implications some of the like the moral like 12 monkeys is a non-linear science fiction movie with time travel right yeah but it's it's also like that so uh, it's it's interesting like because to say non-linear what is non-linear because some things are linear and and some things aren't linear right like jeremy renner's experience is linear uh and uh for what it's worth, the the unspooling of the film, right? Like the the narration of the film is. Uh, yeah, it's because the film's in English for the most part. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. For the I mean, the heptapod parts, it was like it was like spoilers in the middle of the film, right? Because like once you saw one of those circles, you knew how the whole thing was going to end uh, if you understood heptapod, right? Like because once you understand heptapod, if you understood heptapod, you didn't have to wait for the middle of the film to know how the film was going to end, right? Exactly. If you understood heptapod, you already seen the end of the film before you bought your ticket. Well, there, yeah. There's a weird. I mean, there's a weird like predestination, <laughs> free will kind of kind of thing, and it, right. It sort of punts. It punts on a lot of these. Uh, it punts on a lot of these questions because I think it's it's a film about uh, it's a film about atmosphere and a film about self denial uh, ultimately right and so it's it, a lot of this stuff is like making kind of uh, the the scary thing 
right? I, I don't necessarily uh, agree that there's nothing scary about uh, about going into Docking Bay 49 or nothing dangerous uh, because I was listening to the soundtrack. I don't know if you had your fingers in your ear when you were listening to the movie, but on the no, soundtrack, no. Uh, it was going... Bwam. Well, yeah. and that's and that that's very manufactured that's yeah. very dangerous right like blam means it's means it's dangerous it's a signifier of it's a signifier of danger so how can how so can you it... take Hans Zimmer's word for it as to the consequences <laughs> of the character's actions <laughs> yeah no it's only it's only not dangerous if you look at the plot the characters the story the circumstances the actual situation that the movie is is I depicting mean, but if you listen what? to the soundtrack and it goes blam, then you should be terrified. No, I mean, like, well, I mean, this sort of raises the question of does anything that happened in Inception actually matter, right? If it's all just like random people having fantasies and there's like some some things that are associated with it. Well, so, but that that feels like wagging the dog to me, right? That like that the, that if you take if you yes you're going to be scared because the soundtrack suggests to you that you ought to be scared but that's because those sounds have in the past been associated with other images that are different from this one but also this is the idea of like this on a superficial level it looks scary it feels scary but once you know what it is i mean i guess here here's here's the thing here's the thing and i'm curious to hear what amanda thinks about this too amy adams doesn't have a superpower in this movie Right. And there there is there is not so much a conflict between free will and, and predestination. The movie makes like a, a, a definitive statement on the nature of time and existence, which is that uh, time exists simultaneously. Right. In multiple dimensions. And the experience of time is a function of of uh, thinking language. Right. Like that you 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 perceive through your conventional senses in forward and backward in time in your whole life, like Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen, like all the time, right? But because of the way that language organizes the thoughts in your mind, that dictates your perception of the passage of time, right? And this is, we can get into whether that theory is 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 important or not, or like matters, or whether it's been, to, to what degree, what parts of it are true. It's certainly an overreach of something that has a grain of interestingness in it. Um, but that's the deal, right? Is that like everything is always predestined, but, and to have causality, that's also a function of thinking in human language, right? If one event can cause another event, uh, right? In, in that way, that's another thing that you only get to if you think like a human, Um Maybe maybe that that is a technology that humans have a technology of thought that heptapods do not have that disadvantages them uh, into some degree, right? But it's the idea that oh, that all of this is about perception. It's not about the underlying reality. Well, yeah, it's a, but it's a it's a it's a narrative. So it, to a certain extent, it has to be about it has to be about choice, right? Because it's about uh, well, it's about yeah. it's a narrative that doesn't have a lot of meaningful choices in it. And in that sense, to the degree no, that it yeah, falls, the, the, well, there, right? I, there are sort of two. There are two moments of meaningful choice, and they they occur. They're kind of thrown away and they occur right at the end of the film um amanda uh, wh- i don't want to leave this topic though without having having you uh way way in wh- was anything were you did you feel like you were in danger when you were watching this movie Bwam! Bwam! <laughs> be scared of the aliens they're alien octopuses you know what things can do for a they're person. not they're not octopus uh, octopods Grab them by the octopuses <laughs> oh. sorry <laughs> I had to use that octopuses. Uh, octopods. 
Thank you. Yeah. Let's, uh, well, sorry, sorry, but we, I didn't mean to interrupt you right when I asked you your question. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Well, yeah, I think at first you feel danger and, you know, you're like looking at the canary and we're like, ah, you know, what's happening? Well, certainly when she takes off the astronaut type clothing and, you know, you're not quite sure if like her skin's going to break out in hives and she's going to die immediately or everything's going to be okay. But I feel like this movie was generally more uh, contemplative, contemplative, not quite sure how to say that right now. But, yeah, as far as, you know, science fiction and movies go, I thought it was a lot more just, you know, sit down and take in the experience rather than, like, worrying about plot and what's happening. But then another thing that I noticed that I think maybe this is because of, like, watching so much Doctor Who, but the whole, you know, the can we just get to, like, what happens at the end of the movie? Sure. Okay, you know, the whole thing that happens with the end of the movie, basically, the way, you know, the plot gets resolved, she, you know has a memory of her future talking to the Chinese general and she remembers, you know, the necessary information she needs to have in order to, you know, do the right thing at the climax of the movie. But here's the thing, though, and I thought it was interesting because thinking about it, it kind of mirrors the alien language because it's not circles. They're not full circles. They never meet. They always end in two points that don't actually quite meet. And it was weird because, you know, she she's at, she's standing at the UN party and the Chinese general approaches her and she knows she needs to get, you know, she needs to figure out how to talk to him and she needs to know his phone number and what his wife said to him as her dying words so that she can convince him to, you know, not attack the ships. But the thing is, if she remembered everything all the time, you know, if Amy Adams at whatever time period of her life had all her memories from past and future, she wouldn't need to be shown his phone and she wouldn't need him to tell her his wife's last word to know what they are because she would already remember having done that back when she called him. Right. But it's, she doesn't. Yeah. Um, it's I very mean, clear that, you know, he's showing her his phone, uh, his phone and until he shows her his phone, she doesn't know it, even though she's technically already made that call. So it's kind of like, you know, there's two ways to understand that. Either... She has all the memory of what's happening, which you could you could argue maybe she will get all the memories of everything that's happening once she's like fluent in heptopod, and maybe she's not quite fluent yet. So instead, she can like time travel into little spots. So she time traveled to the future and got the information back, and then time travel back to, you know, the current moment in the movie and made the call because. You know, if she was truly there and she had the memories of everything, she would have remembered all the information already. Right. All I, was of that that had already with, happened. I was that way with Russian. I could go to dinner and I could go to the airport, but I couldn't get from the airport to dinner. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> learning languages are like that. They leave gaps in your lives, right? <laughs> okay, but, but, but let, me, let me get back to, I think, what, what, what Pete is talking about earlier in terms of just like breaking down all notions of causality in this movie. Like, we're trying to break this down here, and I'm going to. Um, say what I think is kind of on the tip of all of our, or at least my tongue. I don't know about you guys, but the, it doesn't matter, right? The causality doesn't matter. Amanda, you addressed this directly earlier when you said that this movie is much more about atmosphere rather than about narrative. Um, and I'm going to take this a step further and um, crib something that I read from a, another review of the movie, which described this as a this movie as a parable, which I think was an interesting choice of words, and it helps us um, step away from trying to suss out all the causal. Um, and narrative uh, arcs of the movie and really step back and get at kind of the 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 lesson right a parable is a, is a story that teaches and has a lesson right and it's all about sort of like the the touchy-feely communication and cooperation things um that like 
all of this, uh, you know, uh, circular, call, uh, uh, nonlinear storytelling is uh, not meant to be questioned there. And it's all sort of just there to serve up. I think this notion of uh, like mankind's uh, uh, everything's going to be OK, right? Like we're all going to cooperate like that is sort of a predestined thing. Um, and it's just a question of how we, we, we work it out with each other. That, I think, is, is was my charitable read of the movie, which uh, it, it, it was, I'm putting out there, I'm not saying that I 100% buy it and I'm totally satisfied by it, but I want to uh, explore that angle of it as sort of like, you know, the, the narrative doesn't matter and it's really just there to teach us about how to hold, hold, all hold hands and sing kumbaya to each other. I, I had a similar feeling, but I thought the moral was totally different. So if somebody wants to talk, I mean, I see both morals, but the moral I was drawn to was a different moral than that. Well, what was, your, what if, was yours? Because I, I kind of want to take that and run with it, but I, I kind of want to get all the evidence on the table first. So what what did you th- what was it ultimately about for you or what was the sort of lesson that you felt like the narrative was supporting? So I thought the lesson, and I think this is like the this is a movie that goes big and goes small, so it's doing both. I don't necessarily think it's either or. I thought that sentence was going to. If I were a heptapod, I would have known that sentence because you would have started writing it with both hands. But I thought I thought that sentence was going to be. This is a movie that both goes big and goes home. <laughs> it has its cake and it and it has it in a box and eats it. If you have your cake, you can eat it. Those things are not in contradiction. Um, but that that the moral of the story was about how to confront uh, the finan- the, the uh, it's about the baby. It's about the little girl and it's about death. And it's about how to confront the reality of being alive as a, as a human being when you know that you're going to die in the future. And in particular, how to confront being a parent when you know that your child is going to die. Right. And the idea is is about um, the conflict between uh, causal thinking and, and a, a more kind of like a holistic way of thinking about uh, the beginnings and ends of things and an idea that in order to enjoy uh, and, and treasure what life has to offer to you, you have to accept the inevitability of thing of, of death. Uh, and so I saw it much less about the world learning to get along and more about the mother learning to enjoy her daughter, even though the daughter was going to have the fatal disease and die. Um, but I guess the two are, are kind of holding hands after a fashion. Um, I mean, I mean, Matt, you go back, you go to the go to the geopolitical stuff if you want to talk about that, because there's certainly a lot of it in the movie. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily that. I mean, a a little bit that the the that stuff is a is a MacGuffin, though. I suppose you can I can you can sort of you can relate the militarism because the militarism is about um, the militarism is about like a sort of game theory minimization of risk, right? Like the, the, the militarism is about playing the odds, right? And about sort of not, uh, uh, the, the, um, and I, I, you know what I mean? About sort of not taking on risk beyond a certain point, you know, um, it's safer to, it's safer to, to blow them up. Um, that, I mean, that's the, the sort of the Chinese point of view, the, the people at, um, the people at the, uh, at the American installation, uh, who plant the bomb is just, this is just like bigotry, I guess, or just, just fear, just as a kind of non, uh, uh, inchoate, 
lashing out. Um, but I guess you can kind of relate that to the idea of, you know, if you game, if you game out the, the outcomes, there's a great deal of misery, you know, uh, once she knows that, that, uh, Jeremy Renner's, that Hawkeye is going to leave her, um, that, uh, you know, and that the daughter is going to die of a rare disease, right? Like at given all that, you know, uh, it would be better to to just sort of blow up to blow up all of that knowledge but but even that i thought was kind of a red herring um it it's a mystery right like the structure of this narrative like what what kind of story is this right like is it a science fiction story is it a time travel story is it a you know story about motherhood is is a, a story about heroism is it a story it's a mystery right it's a story about figuring out a puzzle you know and at a at a certain at a certain level of abstraction it doesn't matter that the puzzle has to do with time it doesn't matter that the puzzle has to do with uh uh you know, nonlinear sci-fi type stuff. Uh, it's, it's just like, it's a mystery. And, and there are actually two mysteries. Um, one is how to speak heptapod and what they're, what they're trying to say. Uh, and, and the, the militarism of the, the foreign powers is, is sort of a MacGuffin to, to like, um, it's not technically a MacGuffin, uh, is a, is a time lock provides a time lock on how long she has to solve the mystery. So it, it artificially creates urgency. Yeah. It's a ticking clock. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but the other mystery, the mystery at the level of narrative is that you're shown the daughter from birth, to, from, from birth to death in montage at the beginning. And you have to, you have to realize that that all takes place after. Right. That's the, the, so there's a, there's a kind of in story and a out of story, uh, out of story mystery. Right. And, and it's, um, you know, and, and that's that, that beginning is not related to like so a lot of the flashbacks happen or flash forwards, uh, the, the flashbacks that the flash forwards that you think are flashbacks happen, um, at moments when she's having at, at, uh, kind of crucial moments in her developing understanding of the new language, right? Um, not that first one. The first one is just uh, the the filmmakers messing with you, right? And and so there are two kind of, you know, there are two kind of uh, there are two kind of analogous um, two kind of analogous mysteries. One is about filmmaking, uh, you know, and one is the 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 sci fi story. Um, sort of sort of realization, but they both they both involve. Um, Sort of uh, what I said before was sacrifice. I I would say uh, either I would actually refine that and say sort of either delaying gratification or or foregoing gratification um, or suspending judgment, right? And and this is the kind of the thematic thing that ties like, hey, we shouldn't blow the we shouldn't blow the the heptapods up, uh, you know, be the the Chinese are are too militaristic, and we really need to contain them as a as a geopolit as a matter of geopolitical security. Uh, three, um, we should I should marry Jeremy Renner, and we should have a baby regardless of the the unpleasantness and pain that is going to come to us. Um, 
you know, for you shouldn't plant a bomb in the you shouldn't plant a bomb in the widescreen heptapod cinema, uh, <laughs> right? Like and and uh, and on and on that these are these are all kind of rule and um, you shouldn't assume uh, that the order in which you see the pictures is the order in which you know, uh, the order in which the events actually, actually unspool. And those things seem to be, I mean, those things seem to be, uh, seem to be related, um, to me. And it's a question about meaning. Yeah. Okay. So I'm actually reminded of our fantastic beats podcast, um, beats scar. That's uh, from the movie DJ Potter and the fantastic beats and where to hear them. Um, that uh, I'm referring to our podcast on fantastic beasts and where to find them. And I commented in that, and uh, it was often the case in these podcasts that, um, we, in our discussion, we managed to tie the disparate threads of a movie together, uh, in a pretty coherent way. And I'm finding that as we further suss out this movie and try to tie together all of its disparate elements, the daughter story, the um, the geopolitical stuff, I'm actually finding the opposite is happening. <laughs> I'm finding that I'm, 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 I'm feeling it's like, it's, it's like less of a coherent of a statement. Uh, I'm going to put this uh, throwaway joke here, uh, but it's, it must be said. I found this movie to be uh, alienating and confounding. Emphasis on the alienating, of course. Uh... Um, but uh, I, I think uh, I want to lead this into, I think, something that Pete uh, brought up in our pre-show conversation, which is that um, this has something interesting and maybe perhaps something, not something necessarily a positive thing, but something interesting to say about uh, the movie business, about Hollywood and its approach to narrative uh, structure. And I think, uh, Pete, what what I was, thought you were getting at was something along the lines of um, – like uh, filmmakers trying to do something novel will produce this essentially. It's something that is frankly alienating and confounding, and that's not necessarily a good thing or an encouraging thing. Or am I reading too much into what you're saying? <sighs> I mean, you don't. It can be your opinion, you know. As in, it doesn't have to be wrong if it's not what I said. Um, but uh, which is a terribly patronizing really? thing to say. No, uh, that is <laughs> that is not the rule of the overthinking it podcast. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess I guess so. So there's I, I like to I like to lean on elegance as an as a value. And I mentioned it last week, too, because I think these were movies that need elegance to solve their problems. And and I, I think of elegance uh, as described to me mostly by Mark Rosewater, the lead designer of Magic the Gathering, right, who, who has, a, has some great work on elegance. And he talks about magic cards and, and how Magic the Gathering, you know, cards are often very complex, right, and do a lot of things. They do a lot of stuff in the context of this very complicated game. And the secret to being successful in designing them is to figure out ways to make them elegantly appear simple whilst retaining an underlying complexity, right? And there's a lot of tricks to doing this and kind of packing in a lot of stuff into into a package that appears to not have a whole bunch of stuff in it. Like making the rope, you know, have braids rather than just be a whole bunch of different strands, right? And that, and that if you can pare it down and simplify without losing the depth or texture, then you have kind of elegance, Right. Um, and that and that both of these movies are a little bit splayed out. Both Fantastic Beasts and The Arrival are a little bit burly to be truly elegant uh, in, in just the amount of stuff that they pack in and how it doesn't quite all fit. Um, I would say that that maybe the shift that you're seeing from movies to series as the medium of choice for prestige artistic work of a commercial nature 
is going to have ramifications for our dominant cultural stories with regards to how they think and feel about causality. Um, because, you know, there's the whole Sigfeld movies have to have the three acts or whatever. I mean, obviously that's a huge oversimplification, but the idea that a movie as a story that you watch in one sitting has a beginning, middle and an end, they're all pretty clearly delineated from each other. Even when you, you shy away from the restrictions and you find some sort of creative or elegant way to reposition them or change them or grow the medium, there still is a message that's baked into the medium, uh, in one way and in a variety of ways that you're either with it, you're against it you're changing it you're moving it and when you shift to a different medium then the stories might also shift in ways that aren't necessarily predictable uh, or expected i guess uh so i guess what i'm saying is that i'm i'm what i've been thinking of a lot this week is less that man the arrival sure is an unconventional movie or the arrival is certain a movie that falls short by because it tries to be unconventional and thus does while it succeeds at being interesting may not succeed at being good at being a movie uh although i think it probably does Right. Um, but more like, man, if the arrival were like a television series, right, it would be would it would be canceled. Like it would be it would be Rubicon, <laughs> right. Like, no, no, no I'm ser- I'm serious. They made yeah. the arrival as a television series. It's like a, a, an atmosphere, a slow paced atmospheric mystery. It was called Rubicon. Yeah. It was a great show. Uh, you the first couple hours you watched it. And it was like um, it, it, it was like, what is this crap? Uh, it's so slow. Literally nothing is happening. And by hour three or four, you realized, oh, my God, this is a weird sort of hypnotism that's that's sort of working on me. And it was it was paranoid and beautiful and and indeterminate. And uh, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And it was canceled because nothing happened. <laughs> literally so really they need to be like man we need to question the nature of reality at the strip club am i right guys <laughs> right it's gonna be a gunfight at the strip club of reality well yeah uh, i don't know i mean we'll, we'll have guys, to do- guys i don't know what does amanda think amanda we're just like blathering on and on we have a guest a special guest on with us today what do you think about all this nonsense well, I mean, you guys talking about that reminded me of that movie Under the Skin, uh, Scarlett Johansson, directed by, forgot his name, but the guy who directed Sexy Beast, which is not about anything sexy or a beast. <laughs> but, yeah, because... Sexy, you know, sexy Beast you... and Where to Find Them. <laughs> yes, Sexy Beast and Where to Find Ray Winstone and, God, I forgot his name, Gandhi Guy. Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley. Kingsley. Yes, Ben Kingsley. <laughs> yes, Ben Kingsley. I would pay to see. <laughs> well, no, I just think it's funny because, like, everything you guys are saying about Arrival now kind of makes it sound like you're talking about Under the Skin, actually, because Under the Skin is really alienating and confounding and really like an art movie where nothing happens. Like, did any of you guys watch the Matthew Barney movie with York, uh, Drawing Constraint 9 or Restraint? No, 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 I missed that one. Okay, so like write these names down, Google them, you know, Drawing Restraint 9 and Under the Skin. Those two movies are actually alienating and confounding and kind of sort of nothing. They have a plot, but, you know, the plot doesn't really have a normal structure and nothing really happens. And Arrival is actually a very normal conventional movie close to them. Like Arrival kind of has, you know, a little like seasoning of oddness to it, but it's still a very, very normal movie. Mm. That is a good thing to remember, that if we're judging it just against the blockbusters, but the world of art film is full of not caring about your rules. Right? Yeah, and you know, those aren't even quite full yeah. on art. I guess the Matthew yeah. Barney one could, could you know, qualify as art film, but the other one's by the guy who directed Sexy Beast. <laughs> right, 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 right. Which right. is, you know, he's a mainstream director. He's a pretty normal dude. Scarlett Johansson is the star of the movie. Right. And, and so, and I mean, we're going to see, what is Under the Skin about? 
so this is the thing. You don't really know that unless you like read the synopsis or whatever, because it's never quite explained. <laughs> but she's an I, I'm serious. She's yeah. an alien from a different planet, and yeah. she comes to Earth, and it's like she's harvesting like meat, basically. So you know, in that universe, we're the cows, basically. She comes in here and she like seduces men, and then takes them into a just a room. I would say dark room, but it's not that it's dark. It's that the room is just all you know black goo. And the guys just like slowly, you know, get swallowed up by the black goo. And eventually it's like the meat, just, you know, everything inside their skin that gets sucked out of it in a second or something. Oh, wow. And then at the end of the movie, it's revealed she's not a human. She's wearing like a human skin and she's like an alien looking thing in the underneath. Ah, so it's like a, it's a vagina dentata movie. A little Kinda bit. Sorta, a black, but... less, less, uh, less dentata and more black goo. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, and, and and it's also the opposite because the end of the movie she gets raped because you know humans are awful, and then the rest of the movie is like her getting like burned to death and you know being like, "What is happening?" <laughs> this this just sounds like a delight. This, this movie it's sounds a, like it's an absolute a love, delight. It's and a, and dra- drawing, drawing restraint nine is is uh, Bjork and Matthew Barney on a whaling vessel, and I think in the end they end up like uh, auto. Oh, yeah, they both like shed their skin at the end of the they, movie. They auto, they, yes, kind of they sorta. they auto cannibalize by by serving one another <laughs> as, as sushi. <laughs> but that's you know uh well, now that's an arrival right there <laughs> booyah <laughs> well i think like my point is that basically like i think watching both those movies before i ever watched arrival kind of prepped me to watch it because you know if you learn how to just sit back and take it in as an experience and like worry about plot less it's a very pleasant movie to watch arrival is just lovely Mm-hmm. Interesting, but yeah, you know, it's definitely Arrival is definitely like a very normal main. You know, like you said, like if you compare it to blockbusters, yeah, it does have a weird plot. But if you compare, it, you know, all the movies that are out there, it's not quite that weird anymore. Well, it, all the movies that are out there uh, by like by you know counting the number of movies. Like I think if you weight that average by the movies that a lot of people see, um, yeah. It's uh, you know, uh, it's it's a little bit different, but but your point is well taken. That like there are a lot of things that you can go to a movie for. One is for a narrative that makes sense or makes sense uh, uh, that that a narrative that makes sense or gratifies. I mean to say um, you in in a way, and and another is for uh, you know a sense of atmosphere, a sense of sort of aesthetic, uh, a sense of aesthetic excellence, and like the, you know this is something that that the film has. It's very I, I you know. Clearly, a lot of CGI, but pretty restrained, um, right? Pretty restrained in the in the use of the the CGI, and and makes uh makes the um you know makes the the spaceships kind of not fantastical, makes them kind of black. Yeah, uh, yeah, like black the, the textures even kind of you know it feels kind of familiar somehow. Yeah, really. Or it's not super sleek and, you know, it's not like the monolith from 2001. It's very like textured, really organic. So there's a sense of elegance, not, not elegance as nimbleness, but elegance as, um, taste like elegance normally combines a sense of, of, of nimble, uh, facility with a sense of, of good taste. And, and, uh, this film has one and, and perhaps not, not the other so much, but the, the other thing that it has is it engages this idea of language as kind of determining our, like, uh, uh, our sort of cognitive limitations a little bit that if you have, I mean, there's, uh, you know, 
I, I don't know. It's it, probably apocryphal. It's a story that like, you know, if you have no uh, story from like field work, sociological field work or something like that, anthropological uh, ethnography that like, oh, you know, I studied a tribe that had no word for the past and or the future and they just didn't understand the past or the uh, uh, the future. And that this this sort of or like, you know, oh, the the indigenous peoples of Alaska have 200 words for snow or something like that. Um, that, uh, that if you understand heptapod, uh, your cognitive, uh, limitations fourth dimensionally are sort of lifted and you can understand time in a way that we sort of understand space, right? That we, we, uh, you, you kind of move in space and you can kind of your mind, at least your perception can, um, can move in time. And this, this is a, like, this is a new this is a new gloss on that a little bit right like you can get superpowers by learning a language is i suppose a kind of corollary but not necessarily what the uh what the original linguistic theory was about how how language shapes um cognitive potential or how how language shapes the boundaries of thought I, d- my understanding i'm a non-specialist it makes me wish we had a linguist here my understanding is that this has been largely discredited as a as a way that um people understand uh language now but what uh uh i don't know this this was obviously a very big deal in the movie and the heptapod sentences for being sort of fully formed she talked about like writing from both ends of the sentence at the same time uh which involves an a priori idea of what the sentence is what it's what it's going to be the fullness of it and it's kind of physical instantiation in the in the writing and how this works um you know i don't know pete what what did you uh, what did you think about the theories of of language and cognition that this film seemed to be be exploring. I think that there's definitely stuff in the research that it refers to in the research, like the big bucket of black glue, black goo that Scarlett Johansson leads graduate students to as they dive into the research. Um, well, yeah, I mean, one that came, that I was reading something about recently, right, is the whole notion of color theory and the debate about color theory, this idea that if you don't have words for certain colors, you potentially don't see them, right? That, uh, that, that there's a reason that in, say, like the Odyssey, the ocean is never referred to as blue, right? It's only referred to as dark, uh, and the notion is associated with this idea that, well, that, that civilization didn't really have the concept of blue. They saw blue as dark, and blue was something that developed as a sort of collective creative effort over time to identify the, what blue was, give words to it, right? Ident- and, and then thus, by teaching children what it is, they can learn to see blue. Uh, the most manifest example of this in our, in our own, that you come across on like a daily basis is probably like a robin redbreast. Right, which I've always kind of wondered, well, why is they call it a robin redbreast? Its belly is clearly orange, right? Well, that's because the word for orange didn't exist, right? And it was thought of as red, right? And, and this idea of having tons and tons of different names for colors is relatively new. Now, the question is, can you really make authoritative statements about the, the visual qualia of these people? You know, is it just because you can talk about it? It runs into a problem. It runs into the, a sort of heuristical problem or just a problem of op- assertability, observation, and falsifiability, Right. Like a sort of Karl Popper related problem in that sort of whole realm of things where it's like you can't really prove. I mean, I guess people could research it and they could say, 
you know, hey, do you see a difference between these two colors? And they say no, because they think of them both using the same word. But can you really prove that if they were to sort of translate the context, right? Like, do they do they experience? Can you really prove that somebody doesn't experience two different colors uh, that you have different words for, but they don't, right? But but these are all these are all like sort of very very Wait, small Keith, level. God, what ha- what happened? Are we are we eighteen and high back into the dorm room? <laughs> like, dude, what if you see blue and I see blue and it's different, but we just call it blue? Look, dude. I don't, I don't. <laughs> I mean, wow. you joke about it, but that's that's overthinking, man. That's what it is, right? Is the is you take you have fun and you talk in something that you're thinking about in the words that you want to use, right? Why can't you um, just look at blue and enjoy it? Why do you always have to? <laughs> you know, it's pretty. You know what I mean? It's pretty. It's a pretty movie, right? Well, right, in right. my like highly unqualified opinion, I have a teeny anecdote about this, which is that. I watch a lot of like makeup YouTube, which is basically like girls teaching you how to apply makeup pretty much. And I noticed two things. The colors taupe and mauve don't really exist in Portuguese. And I looked them up and mauve actually exists, but nobody says it. But it's literally called cor de malva, which is color of mauve, which would be, you know, the color of the flower mauve. So nobody ever says that. And taupe is a very, very, very popular common eyeshadow shade because it's basically the shadow that, you know, older ladies or, you know, people who work at offices wear. It's that kind of, you know, a little bit darker than your skin shade color. And we absolutely have no name for it in Portuguese. And I realized that, you know, we just call it like grayish brown or dark beige or whatever. And so I don't think, you know, it's not that you don't perceive the color. It's that each individual person is going to call it whatever they think it is. And, you know, they're not going to you know, the names the, that people use for the color aren't going to sound like they're all talking about the same color, but they are. It's just that this one color doesn't have a name in this one language. Yeah, it would, all, it would be a very different movie if you made it about a fortune teller, right? If there was like Miss Cleo is the protagonist of The Arrival, and she, she has some sort of sense of events that are happening in the future, right? But she, doesn't, she uses it for funny means. And then, but the aliens come along and they teach her the language to understand. It just it seems odd that you would get no stimulus, Right. I guess she's I guess this idea of sort of remembering there's this claim that's baked into the movie, I think, that everybody sort of thinks about memory the way that Amy Adams does at the beginning of the movie. Uh, but then that's part of the suspense, right, is that you think that she's talking about it in sort of a glass menagerie memory play sort of way. Like this is all stuff that happened in the past and we understand it imperfectly and how it all relates to each other. But then that gets flipped, as Matt said, and the big answer to this this question is that it happens in the future. But but I don't really feel like if we if we accept this. I mean, it's a, it's a science fiction extension out of Serdam. But if we were to accept the precept here, which is that you can change your perception through your senses of the things around you in a profound way, right? And how you organize that information in a way that it, you were utterly ignorant of it. And then you become like utterly, undeniably aware of it by, by changing your language. Uh, I feel like it would be a very different movie if the person I – just, I just don't feel like people's everyday experience is like that. Right. Where where they actually do have glimpses of the future. I mean, maybe you guys do and I just don't. Or maybe I do and I'm just afraid to tell you guys the truth. Uh, oh, yeah. We can all see into the future, Pete. It's just you. It's just me. See, that's how I feel sometimes. I, I, thought, I, I think it's just the Brazilians, Amanda, because you don't have a word for move. <laughs> 
Yes. Oh, that's so you use that part of your brain to see into the future, and we use it to to name. Oh eyes. yeah, you guys keep like stuffing your brain with like stupid, useless makeup shade names, and you know we're using that to see the future. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Is it everyone in the southern hemisphere, or is it just Brazilians? I think it's just Brazilians. We're special. Well, I guess so. Like uh, the, uh, on account of the Portuguese, is it the uh, yeah? Is it the Portuguese in Portugal? I don't know. Who know? Who knows? We're oh yeah, to... that was mind blowing. That movie taught me that my language was not originated in Portugal. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so uh, so sorry, Pete. You, we we derailed you, but I feel like you invited it. <laughs> it was always going to happen. All right, I, I had to appreciate. At the beginning, that it was always going to happen at the end. You know, right? I, yeah, and I, I, I thought that this was the beginning of this podcast, but then I learned that it was the end. Uh, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. then it did deserve because we did subject it to that level of scrutiny after all or before all but the whole time we all knew that the big defining fact about bad santa 2 is that it stars billy bob thornton but we never said it at the time but because time is curved maybe the end of the podcast could go all the way around back to the beginning and it could tell matt that bad santa 2 stars billy bob thornton Pete, is that the one with the jackass guys? No, Matt. That's Bad Grandpa. Blah! 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 Ascension. <laughs> <laughs>